This episode is brought to you by Intellum. You know Intellum. We've had them on the show before. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know the customer education leads to retention and revenue. So the Intellum platform gives you everything you need to educate your customers, partners, and employees on the products and services you sell. They've got a great platform. They've got Evolve as an authoring tool. And with Intellum, put it all together. You can deliver highly personalized and engaging learning experiences, give your customers a single destination for all their learning needs, and create and manage a wide range of content. So check them out today at try.intellum.com slash C-E-Labs. That's C-E-L-A-B-S. Welcome to C-Lab, the Customer Education Lab. I'm Adam Avramescu, and I am here today with one of my favorite customer education leaders, Alessandra Marinetti. Hi, Alessandra. Hey, Adam. How's it going? It's going super well. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing well, thank you. And uh, we are doing something a little bit different today in a few ways. Uh, First, because we are both actually currently recording from Europe. So that's not usual, right? <laughs> Usually we're in the U.S. <laughs> where, where are you today, Alessandra? I am in Rome, Italy, beautiful Rome, Italy. It's a gorgeous day outside, sunny and wonderful. So and I'm oh. nine hours away from my usual time zone, which is San Francisco. I am a little jealous because I am in the Netherlands today in Amsterdam, and uh, we have had a false spring followed by uh, another winter, and uh, now it's it's starting to get better. But uh, perhaps fittingly, we, we didn't want to do a national day of. We wanted to pick uh, an international day of because uh, neither of us are currently in the U.S. So uh, we are proud to celebrate World Radio Day. Yay, radio. Yay. <laughs> uh, and what is podcast but uh, but radio, if you think about it? That's right. So, okay, one of the reasons that it was unusual is because where we are physically located. But another reason why this is maybe a little bit of a different episode is every once in a while, uh, we like to do episodes, which is really just, you know, conversations between customer education leaders. What are the sorts of uh, topics that we talk about? How do we think about leadership? Um And in fact, we did an episode not too long ago with uh, Steph Pellegrino, where we talked about the next generation of customer education leaders and, uh, you know, what do they need to do in their careers to move up? And then what do we need to do as as customer education leaders to really help set the stage for the next generation? So I see this almost as a continuation of, of that conversation in a way. So Alessandra, like, let's let's get started. The reason why we wanted to have this conversation is uh, because you had recently read uh, a book that is actually one of my favorite leadership books of all time, uh, Tribal Leadership. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I read the book based on your recommendation. Um, The book is called Tribal Leadership by Dave Logan, John King, and Haley Fisher-Wright, which is a mouthful. I won't remember (laughs) all these names. I think I I always say like Logan Logan et al. When I I try to explain who the book is by. That's right. You know, apologies to the other two. Yeah, I know, for sure. Um, And it really blew my mind away because it's not one of your typical leadership books that have a lot of very useful, you know, tips and tricks and tools, 
this book really gets to the core of the, the uh, culture of organizations and how you can take organizations through the stages of innovation and productivity and really creating um, work environments that work better for everyone, not just for the business, but also and especially from my perspective for the people in it. So it really blew my mind away and it really gave me the kind of different view in terms of how I think about leadership, uh, the way that I manage, the way that I lead, the way that I involve others in uh, the conversations around leadership. Um, so it was, it was just uh, an incredible experience. And that's why I uh, kind of rambled on with you that <laughs> there was something that we absolutely need to talk about. Yeah. And, and you and I had, you know, some good pre-conversation about this too. This is, this is a book that I read, you know, I think closer to when it came out, probably about a decade ago. And I think it has had such an impact on the way that uh, I lead and and on the way that I, I approach uh, management and leadership and culture within an organization. So let's let's talk about why it's so impactful. And maybe maybe to do that first, let's let's talk a little bit about what it is and yeah. um, you know kind of what what the methodology is. Do you want to talk a little bit about that also? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so the the authors have done uh, kind of undertaken about a ten years journey of research in thousands of organizations. Um, my understanding is that it's mostly in the U.S., but these are large organizations, and therefore, kind of, they touched uh, on the international side of it as well. And they looked at the culture of what they call tribes. So, the these are naturally occurring groups within organizations and within society, really, um, that are uh, not aligned with the org structure. You know, they're not kind of top down. Impose, but these are naturally occurring ones. For example, our customer education groups and communities are tribes, yeah. right? Yeah, it's sort of based on the idea that um, you know, as they've done like broader anthropological research, it's it's that the there's kind of a naturally occurring upper upper bound for uh, how big like a human tribe can be, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, so they talk about a tribe being anywhere between twenty and one hundred and fifty uh, people, and an organization is a tribe of tribes, right? So th these groups are uh, somewhat small in nature because that's the, the, the way that human beings can interact and they cannot know thousands of people well. Yeah. And the idea of a tribe is that you know the people in the tribe well enough to ideally and hopefully trust them and, and interact with them and share and have something in common with them. And Which is actually interesting. Like this is not necessarily, maybe, maybe this isn't, uh, you know, rocket science, but sort of explains why when you're growing as a startup and you kind of hit that upper bound, you're, you're past 150 people, the organization culture inflects probably in a different way than it does, say, when you're going from 300 to 500 or even maybe like 500 to 1,000 because at that point you're already in tribes of tribes. So now yeah. maybe you're thinking a little bit more about your department or your team. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good uh, observation. And I, what I... What I think it kind of this leads to is that an organizational um, uh, culture, if you will, is kind of a, a, an overimposed structure, if you will, across the the, the tribes. But yeah. the tribes, in and of themselves, can have their own individual culture, and that's probably the the kind of adds the complexity to the management of a culture within uh, within a, a large organization. And what I think is really interesting about the aspects of these cultures, these tribal cultures, uh, 
is that they really hinge on individual values and uh, their behaviors and the language that they use. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe we can kind of go into the various stages. Yeah, that, exactly. Um, they, yeah. So they divide it into five stages, right? And, yeah. and I think they're actually not just based on organizational behavior. I think they also make a tie to life outside the organization too, right? Like, yeah. especially when we think about the like, like what is what is stage one, Alessandra? Yeah, that's right. So stage one is the, the most despairing one, if you will. It's uh, the stage where people uh, have uh, an idea. That they the, the author call it life sucks, right? That's the, the language that people in that stage express themselves in. And they, it's the stage of despairing hostility. Fortunately, within the work environment, only 2% of organizations are like that. They they give the example of the DMV in the United States. Oh, yeah, that's some a, of the, some good, of the DMVs. Uh, uh, and, and they say it's also not like uh, it's not organizationally primarily like 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 organizations quote unquote that are like this are like prison gangs or right like something right. like that. Or right? people who know go postal, if you will, right? Yeah, like so those, maybe those actually the, the tribes they're talking about there. Yeah, so maybe actually DMV is more like stage two than than stage one. But the the idea of uh, that this life suck mentality is that you don't have any hope. And yeah. so, you know, it's probably from a, from my perspective, a little less interesting in the context of a, of um, an organization. Cause again, for, fortunately it doesn't happen very often, but it's certainly something that we need to look at as a, as a society, especially with what's going on in the world right now with the various wars uh, right. right now. So that's definitely something that we as individuals should definitely take a look at. The second stage is the one in which people look at their lives as sucking. So they, the language that they use is my life sucks. So we went from like life sucks, period, to my life sucks. Exactly. There, are, um, there might be other people now who are okay, but I'm right. not. Exactly. I look at you and I see that you're successful. You're doing something that I wish I could do. I can't do it. And therefore my life sucks. And, and this, this, is, this tends to like create a lot of like victim martyr mentality, right? That's exactly right. They call it the uh, um, apathetic victim. The, the authors mm. call it the apathetic victim. And you can see this in, they say, in about 20, 25% of organizations. So it's definitely a sizable uh, number. Yeah. And within organizations, even, you may have a group of people who feel that way while other people are at different stages. And the the mentality, the, the behavior of these people is apathetic. Right? So they're not willing to put themselves out there. They're not coming up with ideas. They're not willing to pitch in. They're just discouraged. You know, they're they're. It's like the typical victim mentality. So I, for me, the, the idea of this book is that you help as a as a tribal leader. You help people going from stage to stage and evolve from the uh, the behavior and the language that they use and the, the feeling that they have uh, to, for the betterment of themselves and the culture. Yeah, because you're not really going to be able to like skip steps that easily. That's right. In fact, you have to like, yeah. You're not kind of not supposed to because you cannot take somebody from stage two to stage four or five that we'll talk about in a yeah. second. People are not ready for that jump yet. Okay, so um, we go from stage two to stage three. What's what's stage three? Stage three is the uh, like a half of the organizations, um, certainly in the U.S., but probably in other parts of the world, is where people have a feeling of or express themselves in terms of 
I'm great. And then the underlying, uh, the unwritten, unspoken second sentence is, and you're not. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, the, the idea, the mentality of the lone warrior. And what I, I want to probably, that's one of the, the stages that really uh, drew me in and really made me appreciate this book because uh, I think most of us, many of us grew up in a, in a world where that was the thing to aspire to. Right? I am yeah. great, I conquer, I rule, and I, if I can, to, to get to when, where I need to be or to be great, I'm going to squash you. I'm going to, to just yeah. stamp all over the rest of the, the it's world. very like individualistic, high performer. I, I call it, it's, you know, it's like the, the, the great man model of performance. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or like stack ranking really follows this, this philosophy, right? If you're going to do performance reviews and, you know, a certain quota has to be in exceeds and a certain quota has to be in doesn't, doesn't exceed. It creates these types of dynamics where there have to be some people who are essentially crushing other people because they're great and the other people aren't. That's, and the other exactly people right. are then thinking my life sucks. Yeah. And maybe they have a point if, if they, <laughs> you know, depending on how the, how the organization is. Absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, in a, in an environment where there are people at that level, that stage three, that creates a lot of stage two mentality, right? Because if I'm your boss and I am that, that person who thinks I'm great and everybody else sucks, I'm going to treat you that way. You know, you're my subordinate and, uh, you know, I'm not going to give you enough to do. I'm, not, I'm going to micromanage you. And that creates misery, right, in, in, uh, in, in its wake. Right, right. And I, I believe it's, it's important for us to get past this mentality, even though it is important to, uh, for people to feel that they're great because that enables them to then move on to the next stage, you know, to, to, to feel that they are that they can contribute, right? That they have a lot to say, that they have a lot to contribute to the world. The fact that they are not sharing, that the fact that they are not uh, expanding that greatness beyond themselves creates a, an environment of, of misery. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I really like about this book, and, and maybe this goes back to your comment at the very beginning about this being a kind of a different a different take on, on a management book besides just like tips and tricks for, for performance is that they really focus on this juncture, this moving out of stage three and into stage four, which we'll, we'll discuss in a minute, but it's, it's kind of going from like I to we just for spoiler alert. I don't know that a lot of books really nail the importance of that transition, right? Because we are so ingrained in a lot of ways to think about maximizing our own performance and becoming top performers and developing top performers as managers that we don't necessarily think about the uh, unintended consequences that it can create, where someone who is a really high performer can essentially crush people around them. And, you know, I've, I've even thought about this, like in, in my own experience uh, as a high performer, I've probably done that to people in the past because I just wanted to succeed so badly. And definitely as a manager, I've managed people who are exceptionally talented um, and really wanted to get to the next level, really wanted to to do the next thing. But, um, you know, you could kind of see like the damage that, that they were causing to people around them. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's really hard to say, Hey, you know, like this is, this is behavior that should be rewarded. So anyway, long way of saying, I really love that it, it, it actually slows down and spends a lot of time on this transition from stage three to stage four. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one thing that occurred to me as I was reading the book 
is that in stage three, even though people are conscious of their capabilities and their high performance, et cetera, they know their, their worth and their value, I think that the stage three approach really stems from a, a sense of insecurity. You know, it's uh, the typical, the classic imposter syndrome, right? Yes. I, I'm at the top of my game and yet they'll find me out. <laughs> you know, eventually they'll know yeah. that I'm an imposter. And so to me, this stage three is also kind of permeated by a sense of insecurity. And therefore, in order to keep my position, I have to put you down, you, yes. you know, the rest of the team, et cetera because I'm not comfortable in my position. Because I think that if I withhold knowledge from you, if I withhold information from you, you're not going to replace me, right? That, there's that, that zero-sum game mentality, in a way, that creates misery kind of a, across the, the board. You know? And I think it's, a, it's something that is not often discussed and viewed, you know, this idea of the, the superman often, you know, the superhero, yeah. kind of provides that uh, that sense of it has the people in who, who feel that way have that sense of insecurity in a way that need to move from in order to go into uh, stage four so that was kind of an epiphany for me in terms of it's, like it's almost like um, uh, this is this is like a hard left turn it's like it's almost like a fascistic uh, view of management right like you have to have a an in-group out-group dynamic and the mm-hmm. in-group, has to be right and has to be pure and the outgroup has to be inherently inferior. And so you might be spending your time doing good things, but the ultimately doing those good things is going to be overshadowed by the amount of, let's call it propaganda that you're, you're putting out there to keep everyone else down. Yeah. And so you're actually working twice as hard to secure your own status. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the one thing that the authors talk about is exactly the, the, amount of time wasted in what they what they call a creating uh, dyadic relationships so if i want to be at the center of the universe because i am great and you're not i'm do- i'm going to form one relationship at a time and mm-hmm. i'm not going to share any of these relationships with anyone else right so i have my my in group is a in the shape of a dyad, right? I talk to you and then I talk to somebody else and I talk to somebody else, but I certainly do not introduce you all for fear of of you supplanting me or you kind of talking behind my back or, you know, you forming other relationships. And that's- You are the hub and everyone else is the spokes, but none of the spokes connect to each other. They all just connect to the hub. Yeah. Exactly. Which like- they make this is sort of an interesting like subplot throughout the book, which is that when you move, say, from stage one to stage two or, or like stage two to stage three, maybe starting to form some of those dyadic relationships is actually helpful, because if you're at stage two, you probably don't have a lot of like good relationships to begin with. You might have like other coworkers that you're really just like complaining with, but you're, you don't necessarily have a lot of positive relationships. So yeah. it's like when you're moving into stage three actually starting to produce those relationships is really helpful, but you have to be able to quickly move out of that um, and not, not hoard relationships, not hoard information because it's, it's kind of going to go into really like sharing. Right. That's right. Absolutely. And and that probably takes you to stage four. Imagine having all guess all of your learning challenges solved. With Docebo's Learning Suite, an AI-powered LMS built for enterprise, you can tackle any challenge. 
you can easily create and manage content, deliver training, and measure the business impact of your programs. Dechevo is built for customers, partners, and employees alike, with dozens of integrations to embed directly in the flow of work. Check out Dechevo today at docebo.com. And yeah. stage four is the, the, the moment where people begin to talk uh, in terms of we. We are great. There's a slight underlying assumption that and you and everybody else is not, but that is um, somewhat healthy, if you will, because if a company has a competitor and the competitor isn't great, that can create a, an environment where people are trying to you know, outsmart the competitor and therefore to do to to innovate, et cetera, as long as within themselves they believe that they are great together. Um, so I think this is a really important point. This is not a like a new age, oh, the power we you know we are all better if it's just we. This is a real, very uh, concrete approach to human relationships and to management, therefore. Mm-hmm. So if I believe that we together are better, I behave differently. And I think this is especially important for a manager because a manager in stage four, the, the, the tribal leader, is somebody who shares information, who is as transparent as possible, who works to align people uh, behind shared values, not my values. So I'm not going to impose my values because I'm the manager and therefore you have to suck it up. But it's really about coming together with, you know, building a sense of, of shared values and shared community, and then aligning behind uh, what they call the noble cause, right? So what do mm-hmm. we stand for? You know, what do we as a group stand for? And I think intuitively, this makes a lot of sense that it, this would create a lot of um, loyalty and a sense of belonging. You know, if we as a group have come up with a you know, set of shared values, a set of... Yeah. Uh, a sense of purpose, then we can much better work with one another. And, you know, there's trust in gender, you know, all, all sorts of goodness and positivity afterwards. Yeah. And, and I think like one thing you see really good managers do here or good leaders, I guess we should say leaders, not managers Yeah, is uh, exactly what you said, like collaborative vision setting, collaborative value uh, definition. And even if a team already has shared values or a shared mission or a shared vision, going back and revisiting that, because especially at a fast moving company, you know, that's going to change over time. Uh, so I really, I, I think that's a really important one. You, you, I think you also see good managers or leaders at this level, um, connecting people and, and putting people on their teams in the spotlight. That's yeah. something that we talked with Steph Pellegrino about is, uh, you as the manager, you as the leader, don't always need to be the one giving the presentation, taking the opportunity. Like it's a it's a good chance to put your team in the spotlight too. Totally, yeah, absolutely. And so the authors talk about the idea of the triads, right? At this point, anyone who is at stage four enables others to take advantage of their own relationships. So if I know you, Adam and I know Steph and the two of you don't know each other, I'm going to connect the two of you because you have something that you can share, right? And that's, it's a, it's a, a game of returns in a way, right? It's a proliferation of, of goodness and of, you know, again, sh- sense of shared values and, and whatnot. 
I was also thinking about how the values of a tribe um, align or, or augment, if you will, the values of an organization. In my last company at UpDirect, I worked with my team to, uh, to build our own values, our, our academy values. And those were focused not only on, of course, they were in alignment. They had to be in alignment with the, the rest of the organization. Otherwise, we'd be outside of it. We couldn't go counter. But within our small group, we worked to figure out who we stood, for, what we stood for. You know, what, how do we view customer education? How do we view uh, designing for uh, upskilling and, uh, and expanding competencies? You know, how do we want to interact with one another? So it was kind of a subset of groups that we collectively came up with together, and that created an incredible sense of belonging with one another. And that created kind of a, even though uh, technically the, the group was not the, the tribe <laughs> that yeah. uh, the, the Logan and, and et al. talk about because it was, it was uh, less than 20. Still, well, I we think can that, all treat, we can treat our teams like, like well, it's, like the principles still stand, right? Yeah, Regardless absolutely. of the actual size. Absolutely. Yeah, I think like another thing you do well, Alessandra, uh, you know, if you if you would like some unsolicited praise is I think you're a really strong connector. Um, I noticed that you often connect people with each other. Um, you connect people with me, um, but I see you connecting other people as well. Uh, I know that, you know, you used to work at LinkedIn and, and I've heard you describe yourself sometimes as uh, the human LinkedIn because you make <laughs> connections between people. Yeah. Um, and like, I think that's a really sweet way of putting it. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Um, and it's so interestingly, and I think this is a really important point. Interestingly, even people who feel like that, and I do feel like, and I, I certainly want to be a connector. I strongly believe in the power of connection, depending on where people are in, uh, in their career or in their, uh, in an organization, they may revert back to earlier stages. I know I have behaved as yeah. a stage three manager, manager, not leader, right? No, I know yeah, that yeah, yeah. I have withheld information and then I, I realized that I was doing so, right? And yeah. I, I would ask myself, why, why are you doing this? This is, this is silly, right? And I think it, it depended on how comfortable I felt about my position and whether I felt that I'm, I might be on, on shaky ground or I was, you know, maybe there was something that was going on within the organization. There was a reorg, right? So yeah. what, I, what I think is important to point out is that people can revert back and forth, also depending on the condition of the organization or the economy or, or the world. And we have to yeah. always be very present to ourselves to make sure that we move back up, if you will, to the, the upper stages. If you yeah. Will. Like it's, e it's easy to be stage four when everything is going really well and you yeah. have a lot of time and you can be super intentional about everything you're doing, but you're right that it's really easy to revert. Um, even just through like lack of care or lack of maintenance of these, these values. Like I agree. I, I've noticed myself reverting more into stage three or even stage two types of behaviors when, um, say like when the, the more, the more political yeah. an environment gets yeah. or, or like the more maybe arbitrary, the politics feel like I can feel my energy draining. And it's like really hard for me to show up as the type of stage four, stage five leader that I want to be. Um, I don't know that I start like hoarding information and stuff like that, but it shows up in other ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why I'm so passionate about this book because this reading this book creates an awareness that once you have it, it's there. Right? You cannot, you've kind of gotten the epiphany, if you will, yeah. uh, that these stages are there, they're real. Every one of us probably has gone through them at some point or another. And you always have the tools to go back up, you know, to climb up the the, the stages. Yeah. So it sounds like like if you use this as a framework, this is what it sounds like you're saying. And 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 I think this yeah. I do this too, is like it's important to keep this framework in the back of your mind so that you can constantly be doing your own health checks, which yes. you know, what what stage am I at? What stage is my organization at? Uh, if you're working within a broader tribe, what what stage is that tribe at? Maybe what what is the company at? And I think one thing that that, you know, especially when I first read this book, I, you know, for a while, like I was seeing everything through the lens of the stages. And I was really thinking a lot about, well, what stage is my company at? What's, you know, and, and I would always think like, yeah, man, we're stage, we're stage four, we're crushing it. We're great. Uh, Everything's great. And then I think over time I would realize maybe that was like, you know, kind of an ambitious diagnosis. And Mm -hmm. I've I've become more like even handed about trying to really like pay attention to how people are talking and kind of what's going on behind the scenes. Because I think sometimes the language obscures the actual behaviors. You can have like a stage three organization that talks like they're stage four. But then you look at like, how is performance assessment done? How, uh, whose whose performance or behavior is really rewarded? Um, where do you see dynamics of high performers crushing low performers? Like that stuff could all be happening while you're speaking the language of stage four. Totally, and especially because the the we terminologies become a bit of a fad. I think it the that language can be mistaken for level four for stage four when it is in fact you know the organization might be at uh, stage three or the the individual might be at stage three. So for me, the, the one marker of a stage four leader, a stage four you know, manager, leader, you know, is the idea of relinquishing control for real. And by relinquishing control, I mean that the person, so I have to be comfortable that by giving, by trusting others, by um, enabling them to do their job, Right, with, instead of micromanaging them or instead of you know withholding information, et cetera, that they will do their not only their job, but we as a group will be much, much better off. Right. It's I think it's um you have to have a level of comfort within yourself to be comfortable in relinquishing that power. And in order to do that, you have to have gone through that idea of that that those stages of um identifying values that we all align behind, you know, and identifying that common purpose, that common, that noble cause. Once that has happened and you worked together for a bit, that comfort level, I think, uh, is almost automatic, but it doesn't come automatic immediately and it doesn't come easy and naturally for, for everyone. I think that's a crucial, crucial component of being a stage four leader. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you mentioned the noble cause, which reminds me, we haven't even talked about stage five yet, which the, yeah. the book doesn't really talk that much about stage five either, but uh, should we talk just briefly about what it is? And Yeah, yeah, definitely. So stage five is, um, is actually not necessarily a stable stage. It's not a place of, 
bliss where you, that you're supposed to live in all the time. It's a place that you visit. And it's at the, the moment where you, you don't say we are great, underlying assumption, and you're not. It's the idea is that life is great. And what that more kind of practical terms it means is that you're not in competition with another company. You're in competition, let's say if you're a pharmaceutical company, you're in competition with cancer, right? You want to yeah. you want to defeat cancer. So you have a very noble cause that you know you're not really competing against another company for, right? And that is, you know, the others uh, in their research, they haven't seen organizations that stay there. They get there and they stay there. They go there occasionally. They accomplish something fantastic. And then they may go back down to, to stage four because maybe then they now go, need to go back and, and competing with other organizations that maybe have achieved uh, something similar. Um, yeah. They talk about... So just, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to stay at that stage for sure, yeah, because yeah. like, you know, inherently, like if you're doing something so great, the competition is going to come in. Or, you know, the, the, the example that um, uh, they gave is the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa uh, that Desmond Tutu and, and others uh, put together. The interesting thing about it is that they, they, they say that no, but there was no blueprint for what they did, Right. There was no blueprint whatsoever for introducing such a, a novel notion of bringing together, uh, you know, sworn enemies and having them form a society that could function moving forward. And so it doesn't mean that South Africa had stayed at that level forever and ever. But during that time, that group of people was at stage five, right? Yeah. And that's what I, I think is a really interesting exemplification of what label, uh, stage five could be. Yeah. It's like do. that transcendent moment where yeah. all of a sudden you're operating on, on a, uh, you, you said this one's called like uh, innocent wonderment, right? Yes. Can, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the outside world has nothing to do with what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. You know, if you think about, if I think about the uh, customer education uh, cause, if you will, right now, the, I always try to think about, um, education teams as building something that is category defining, domain defining. To me, that has a lot to do with the uh, noble cause. Like if I'm working for a company that has a specific tool that enables people to do something better, I want to train them and teach them how to be great at that domain, not just my tool. Right? I think that's a, a really interesting um, purpose and shared goal to, to align behind. Yeah. Or like for a lot of organizations who run programs where they're, they're helping, you know, skill up the, the future job market or, yeah. right. They're helping people get jobs. Like that's a really, that's a noble cause. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you can find a noble cause in many organizations, maybe not all of them, <laughs> but the, many organizations can definitely change the way that people operate in a much better way. So as long as it's clear that there is an alignment and that, again, that the shared values have been built together, I think you, you are in a good spot. Yeah. So I, I think like when we think about how to put this into practice as customer education leaders, and some of this is just going to be general leadership, which, uh, you know, uh, is always good to talk about, but maybe some of this is, is something we can think about specifically through the lens of being customer education leaders or being in the customer education field. Like, 
I guess you hadn't read the book until recently. So I'm, I'm right. curious, like, do you, when, when you read it, did you feel like you noticed, um, maybe examples of yourself in the past where, or where it aligned with the values or it's like, Oh, this explains why I acted this way in this situation. Like, I'm curious how it resonated with you there. Yeah, for sure. Um, as I said, you no, know, this was a, an epiphany for me. You know, reading this book was a, an absolute epiphany. Yeah, for me too. <laughs> and, you know, maybe because I, I come from Italy and Italy has to some extent, uh, somewhat more of a communal uh, culture to, to some, you know, in, in some respects. When I came to, to the United States, which I often perceived as a somewhat more individualistic um, society where, you know, the strong man uh, was the one winning, um, I realized that I was infusing some of my, let's call it Italianness for just for oversimplification, <laughs> into the way that I was managing. You know, my desire was always to be inclusive and yeah. to uh, work with our, others to really think about who we want to be as a group and to, to never impose my will, but rather to, to, come, up, to, come, to, uh, to come up with values and a purpose together. For, of course, if I'm a manager, I will have a, a, a mandate in some cases, so I may need to also steer the, the conversation but kind of intuitively, I've always strived to to be inclusive and to to be a connector. You know, to to your yeah. point, and conversely, as I was saying before, the times when I realized that I wasn't acting as a as a stage four tribal leader, it was because I I felt insecure, I felt uncertain, I felt maybe I wasn't sure as to what I was doing. I had the imposter syndrome. I maybe yeah. there were things that were changing in the organization. And I didn't know where I would stand afterwards. And my instinctive reaction was to kind of close myself inwardly and, you know, kind of go against my, my own principles and values. Yeah, that, that imposter syndrome point is, is really important, I think, and relevant to customer education leaders because the face of customer education changes, right? And, and so if you have learned everything that you've learned in, you know, one scenario. And, uh, you know, let's, let's say, I'm not trying to pick specifically on people who are in like, you know, pre-SAS on-prem education services. I'm just going to use this as an example. Like there were, there were very codified best practices, you know, at a certain point um, for that style of education services. Yeah. There was a certain way you did things. Uh, there were, you know, pretty established practices to run a PNL. Um, and in fact, maybe the other side of that is, you know, you go to uh, an L&D conference and every year there's some new trend or some new best practice or something that you're supposed to be, um, you know, running towards aggressively. And if you go to that stuff as a customer education leader, you might feel like you've missed the boat right? Because you see everyone talking really big game about how they're implementing all these innovative new practices or how the way they're doing things is the right thing. And then you go back and you're like, well, I'm not doing that in my business. <laughs> and and that makes you feel really insecure. Maybe gives you imposter syndrome that you're not like doing things the right way. And, and I think I've had to like 
every time I come back from a conference, I have to like shake that part of me off where it's Mm. like, let me take the parts that feel both like interesting and implementable and use those as a guidepost and really like discuss them with my team. Uh, not just try to like ram, ram them down everyone's throats. Um, but let me not sit there and wallow about how everyone went on stage and presented the ideal version of their lives and then feel regret that I'm not doing that myself. Cause that's what I think, or one of the things I think that creates that sort of insecurity. I would even take that further. I think in the, in the education space, we've often felt like the stepchild, right? Education is the first team that gets cut, maybe alongside with marketing potentially. And, yeah. you know, we, are, we don't count, we don't have a seat at the table. And that, I think it has created a bit of a stage two uh, syndrome, Ooh, if you will. That's a right? really good point, yes. Yeah. In, in a way, you are the, the, the little Cinderella who is really not well thought of and you will never get resources. No, you always, no, we always hear this in our field. I think that's definitely that applies to customer education, but I think in education in general and L&D and so forth, that we're the ones that have the fewer resources and whatnot. Yeah. And, and so it seems yeah. like the solution to that sometimes is to try to be like, you know, the Napoleon of education or the Napoleon of L and D and like, you know, try to like brute force your way through, um, like, because you're, because, okay, like we're all, we're all victims, but I'm, I'm going to be the one who overcomes that. But like, really, like maybe it goes back to your point of like, we all have a responsibility to continue to lift up, uh, education as a discipline. And I, you know, for us, customer education, as a discipline, because it's, it's not that anymore. It's not, we're like, we're not victims. We actually have a ton of traction and a ton of attention. A hundred percent, especially in the last few years, we've talked about this a million times. You know, we've, we've seen more jobs, more roles being advertised, certainly in the U S but even, even outside. And I think it's really incumbent upon us to <clears throat> not to feel victims but to figure out how to express the values that we stand for. You and Dave, of course, have uh, done the beautiful uh, customer education manifesto. That's one, one thing to rally behind, right? One way to look at customer education to, in our respective organizations, to share what we stand for, share what is our noble, noble cause, if you will, and how that impacts the success of the organization. I like to, to look at it from the internal perspective, right? If, if uh, it's almost a level five or stage five perspective, if we feel that life is great, then we in customer education have a ton to contribute to this life. And maybe we are training a way, educating people on the, this, the category that our company, uh, our company product uh, works on. So to me, it's really a matter of not looking at other teams, not looking at other organizations, but looking at what we can contribute, what we mm-hmm. can do for the organization, for ourselves, for our teams and whatnot. And that's hard, by the way, because like the different. first question your leadership always asks you is like, well, what are other people doing? Uh, how can we be like Salesforce? How can we be like HubSpot? Uh, what are our direct competitors doing? Look at their academies, look at their knowledge programs. Yeah. Oh, this peer that we have in the industry that's in our same, uh, uh, you know, uh, that has our same uh, uh, VCs is doing this or using this software, right? There's like a lot of pressure 
to think about that. But you're right, that can't be the primary lens. You have to think first and foremost about like, what do we want to build on our team for our customers? Yeah. And, you know, getting learning from other people's best practices is, in fact, very much a, a level four, stage four, right? No. Yes, absolutely. By connecting ourselves and with one another, we learn from each other and we bring back those experiences, but we still need to translate them into our organizations. So it's great yeah. to go to back to our leaders and say, yep, I can show you what other organizations have done, what Salesforce has done, what HubSpot have done, has done. And here's what we want to do for our organization because our product does X and because our domain is X and because we yeah. our values are X, right? Yeah, so, it's like you can't you can't get hung up at that point on like why you're not the other people. Yeah. You're using that as like data and as as competitive intelligence to like help you understand what you can and, and should do, but you can't get stuck in those feelings of insecurity and imposter syndrome or whatever right. of yeah, you, you actually can't treat it as a competition, right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Dave, my customer education bookshelf is looking a little lonely. Any recommendations? Hey, here's a thought, Adam. Have you checked out Daniel Quick and Barry Kelly's new customer education playbook? Well, I mean, I'm a bit biased here because I'm actually in it, but uh, I think that's a great addition because it lays out the steps to run a customer education program in a super clear, practical way. And it's full of tips from other great leaders who are doing the job every single day. Hey, that's right. And I'm in it too. But seriously, I'm a SaaS book enthusiast. So I'm going to go out and have Barry and Daniel sign my copy today. <laughs> that's great. And if you want one, head over to thoughtindustries.com playbook to get your copy. That link's in the episode description. So get reading today. Um, uh, maybe, maybe another lens to look at this through, because I, I think we talked about this previously, is like, Let's say you are trying to figure out what stage you're at. And, and here I'm really thinking about the, the stage three to stage four transition, because I think a lot of our listeners are probably in, in one of those two. And you want to get like really honest with yourself and you want to be like, okay, like I'm a high performer. I think I'm a good leader. Um, which stage am I really in? How do you do that? How do you really like get real about that? Yeah, I, I this is an, a really interesting question. Um, I think what can really help is almost like engendering an epiphany in terms of how people, how the world looks at you. For example, if you get a, a 360 degree assessment about how people perceive you and how your team perceives you, how your peers perceive you, et cetera, you can really get a good sense as to whether you are at the stage that you want to be at, you know, whether you are a stage four leader or whether, in fact, you're still behaving at a different level. Um, I think also identifying, kind of, if, you're, if you read the book, um, looking at the behaviors that people exhibit in stage three, like am I just building dyadic relationships? Am I only keeping the knowledge to myself? Am I only keeping people to myself? Or am I actually sharing? And if I'm not, what can I do to do that? You know, the, in the, the, the others at some, say, at some point say, you know, go to a conference and uh, get to know people and then introduce them to one another. Right? Just to me, it's almost like, I don't want to say forcing yourself to, to adopting the, the stage four behavior, but in a sense, yes, right? Just yeah. well, know what you're doing and do it differently in a way. Another one that I've tried to do, like, and, and, and keep myself like along those lines is 
when I think about like my direct reports on my team, um, how much am I being the hub and they are the spokes for all conversations? Like, are we conducting all of our business in one-on-ones or are we having more team meetings, group meetings, collaboration, brainstorms? Uh, am I encouraging them to talk to each other about issues and problems? Or am I putting myself at the center of all of that? Because like, that's sort of a, uh, you know, if you're being uncritical about your own behavior as a manager, then yeah, you're going to do that. Cause you're like, yeah, I'm here to solve everyone's problems, mm-hmm. but you're not really right. Like you, you're not necessarily the best one to solve everyone's problems or to like deal with everyone's issues. So like, don't let it all happen in one-on-ones. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Also look at whether you want to be CC'd on every single communication or look <laughs> at whether you are, uh, before uh, your team members uh, go to, let's say, one of your peers or somebody else outside of the organization, they have to go through you, right? You know, if you are, as you were saying, if you're the hub of communication, of assignments, et cetera, then you are not <laughs> a stage four manager or a stage four leader. You're not behaving that way. That's why I was saying earlier, relinquishing control for me is the linchpin, right? Just get comfortable with, you know, some if if one of your team members who is used to you assigning work or you know letting you know, directing people to different uh, members of the organization, uh, intentionally send them back. You know, say to, to your team member, just go figure it out. Now, feel free to absolutely yeah. go and talk to that person, even if that person might be higher up in the in the hierarchy. And I know in some organizations that this may or may not be possible. So obviously, you have to gauge yeah. depending on the, the 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 organizational flatness or or lack thereof no but like the broader like the broader um concept like to if you use this as a goal post about relinquishing control i think is really important yeah especially because you know like whenever you talk to people about what makes them unhappy in their jobs or why they leave jobs like it seems to me at least like one of the biggest reasons you always hear is micromanagement or just like lack of empowerment or, or lack of trust in them as an individual, as a performer, right? If you don't feel like you have agency in your job, you're not going to want to keep that job. Yeah. And I think that you can see that in every single aspect that oftentimes is, uh, you know, you see in exit interviews, no, I didn't have enough career development opportunities. Well, that often stems from the fact that if I'm a stage three manager, I'm going to give you subsets of assignments rather than right. telling you, this is your project, go figure it out, come to me for support, removing obstacles, you know, brainstorming, et cetera. But it's your project and I trust that you will be uh, driving it to completion. That creates a lot of professional development opportunities, especially if you give people stretch assignments. Obviously you want to gauge where they are, right? In, in their sure. professional journey. But you can always give people the right level of assignment um, so that they can take it to the next level. You know, just yeah. stretch them, right? And this and this is why um, when, whenever people ask me like what leadership books to read, I recommend reading this one after you read Multipliers by Liz Wiseman because she goes into a lot of those uh, techniques and behaviors as a manager as well. Yeah. Like how you can actually already have set the stage for that. So by the time you're thinking about like, building a stage four culture, you kind of, you've, you've already worked on, on those pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because I, I read multipliers also based on your recommendation. 
um, and I find it incredible. I think I, I would recommend reading Tribal Leadership first, just oh, really? to get yourself in that mindset, because then the, the multiplier in my mind is the stage four, stage five leader, right? So once you know who you are as a leader, and once you've worked out the or at least who you aspire to be on a regular basis, <laughs> um, then multiplier gives me at least the, then the the tools and the the thinking on how to uh, behave and operate, I should say, within uh, within that stage four. Yeah, um, so. I you know, and and actually, it's interesting. I I did read tribal leadership before I read multipliers, so maybe maybe my my practice was out of line with my <laughs> my recommendation <laughs> to people, but like. The, the light bulb moment I had when I read multipliers was that what she describes is the difference between a multiplier manager and a diminisher manager yes. is the same as being at stage four versus being at stage three, yeah, right? It's 100%. that, it's that same, like I, we mentality. hundred percent. Yeah. So I think, I think what we're saying is, um, read a lot of business books and the ones that actually seem good and give you light bulb moments, then. Uh, really let them marinate and check in with yourself and see how you're putting them into practice. 100%. Don't just read the summary. <laughs> or or uh, listen to them. You know, for me, listen listening to listening to a, a business book is a much uh, more more powerful experience than reading it. I discovered, you know, during these two years of the pandemic, I took lots of walks and I was listening to audiobooks, and uh, I don't know, they felt more personal somehow. So I, I enjoyed them more. Yeah, I, I like to have business advice whispered into my ear personally. Exactly. Does that make me an auditory learner? I don't know. Oh, let's not go there. Okay, we're not. <laughs> Stay tuned for part two where we debunk learning styles. Oh my gosh, Alessandra, it has been so great talking with you about this, and I, I hope for our listeners this was a um, you know a valuable experiment. I, I'd like to do more episodes where we talk about leadership more more broadly and don't necessarily talk about you know just like tactical customer education best practices but alessandra any any thoughts before we uh sign off or any other light bulb moments you want to share any other light bulb moments i think the, for me the, the bottom line of uh leadership is being authentic and being authentic means looking inwardly being authentic with yourself first and foremost and i think the tribal leadership book really gives you gives one the opportunity to do that. Um, and you cannot be authentic with your teams and others unless you're authentic with yourself. So yeah. that's uh, one of my biggest epiphanies long before tribal leadership, for sure. I completely agree. Authenticity is 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 key. I wrote my thesis on authenticity. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I want to uh, read that thesis. Please don't. I'm sure it's terrible. I have not looked at it since I wrote it. <laughs> Um, well, thank you, uh, Alessandra, for joining us today. It was so great uh, getting to have one of our signature uh, amazing chats, but recorded on the air. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> it's it's always a uh, wonderful to to have uh, to to talk with you and to uh, really exchange thoughts and ideas. And just looking forward from to more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we both owe a debt of grat gratitude to Logan King and Fisher Wright. Yep. Uh, for their fantastic book. They're not paying us. Uh, we just want you to go and read it. And uh, to our listeners, if this helped you, 
uh, please visit our website, customer.education, where you can find notes and articles. Uh, in fact, I just published an article on there recently about becoming a customer education leader. Uh, please visit the places where you rate podcasts and uh, give us a, a five star if you feel so inclined. Uh, we haven't seen reviews in a little bit, so uh, we'd love to have more great reviews from you. Um, and if you have feedback for us, please give it a, uh, give that to us as well. And uh, on Twitter, I'm I'm at Avramescu. Are you on Twitter? Yes, you are. I see you like things in Italian all the time. Yeah, it's uh, more of a, an Italian <laughs> Twitter, to be honest. <laughs> so LinkedIn is the best way to find me, actually. <laughs> all right. Find us both on LinkedIn. We're there anyway. I still don't know why we always talk about Twitter. I think just because it's in the script, um, <laughs> which I'm not reading today. So uh, to our listeners, thank you. Go out there and educate, experiment, and find your people. Thanks for listening.